looking to revamp your organization's culture? The Small Giants Community Summit is an annual event in Detroit that brings together purpose-driven leaders from all over the world. Our next summit is April 26th through 28th, 2022, and will focus on the theme of Culture Reboot. The past couple of years have brought on a lot of change, and we want to find the human element amidst it all. We'll have speakers and panelists dive into fresh perspectives on topics like onboarding, financial transparency, and mental health. Visit the Small Giants website to register for your ticket to the summit today. Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. My guest today is Angela Barbish, CEO of Revalue Investing. Angela is a mom, an anthropologist, an entrepreneur, and an unabashed challenger of the status quo. She's dedicated 18 years of service as a values-driven financial advisor in the Detroit metro region and is a current participant in the Small Giants Leadership Academy. Welcome, Angela. Welcome to you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, thanks for being with me. Now, first thing that comes to mind is, as I uh, look at the intro is this idea of a values-driven financial advisor, words that don't always go together, if I'm being honest, about the industry. So tell me how you got into the business and and how you guys do this in, in your company. Yeah, thank you for that uh, very grounding starter question. Uh, and how is it that this came to be? Uh, So I was really pursuing impact from the time I I came out into the workforce in my late teens, early 20s. I wanted to figure out how I could put my life to good use. And I thought maybe I'll go into public policy or local government, I thought was another uh, way I could have a positive impact. Um, But through a a series of, of interesting events, it it occurred to me that understanding how money worked and how money wasn't working for so many people was perhaps the most uh, incredibly powerful way that I could put my life to good use and to have an impact. And so I had that values-based perspective from the start, but it took me about a decade or so of traversing the industry to figure out how to make that a practice or part of a practice. And so what that means to us today is that we help investors invest both on and off Wall Street alongside their values. So on Wall Street is through environmental social governance screening, ESG screening, which many people are becoming familiar with. But off of Wall Street is still a relatively new concept, and that is investing directly in community. And there are not very many advisors in the country that are well-versed in how to do that or are willing to take the risk to do that with their clients. Um, but, you know, it's a you get one shot at life, and this is a go big or go home kind of perspective I have about life. So... So that's one way that values-based, uh, what that means in practice. And then the other 
dimension of that is helping uh, investors value more in their lives than just their balance sheet. And so helping them wrap their arms around all of those non-financial assets and liabilities in their lives, like their health, their time, their social capital, their skill sets, and everything else that makes up the fabric of our lives that often doesn't get talked about in a financial advising context. Now, who who would a typical client be for a company like yours? And when I think about you know, wealth management or typical financial advising, you know, the seems like the money comes first and the return comes first. And we talk about social issues and and doing good, but it it seems like sometimes they work against each other. Does some of it have to do with the kind of people that become your customers? Mm, yeah. I'd say there are three different kinds of people that find their way to us or have over the years and increasingly more so in the last couple of years now that uh, social issues have really taken a front seat. The first are entrepreneurs who have become successful in life and uh, they tend to have not cut their teeth on Wall Street in the first place. So they are, you know, have built successful businesses are often small giants, uh, just like my peers here in the community, and are um, are really mission driven in their lives to begin with, and are looking for advisors that match that um, that uh, kind of shift off of Wall Street and into local the local business community. The second type of person that finds their way to us are multi generational inheritors that are the next generation of folks who are just getting their funds out of their trusts and are now coming to terms with how that money was earned and at whose expense or at at the planet's expense um, historically. And they're wanting to make amends and they're doing that through redistribution, giving it away or through divestment, getting off of Wall Street out of those extractive investments and into community investments. And then the third kind of person that we serve are the workers are uh, people that are, you know, working at nonprofit organizations and um, making, you know, just barely making ends meet and, uh, but have access to uh, maybe a retirement plan for the first time, or, you know, they're, they're starting to learn about money for the first time. And typically our industry does not serve those people. Uh, they, there's a kind of an unspoken minimum threshold in order to get services in our industry. And that generally excludes folks that are, you know, maybe living paycheck to paycheck or just saving their first, you know, $10,000. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of going beneath that floor, so to speak, and, and reaching people who have the same desires, interests, and needs to either save for the future or make an impact in, in the world. And, and you're making that available to them um, in ways that many traditional advisors wouldn't. Yeah, absolutely. About 20% of our clientele are folks that are traditionally excluded for economic reasons. And uh, and many times the folks that are the multi-generational inheritors or the entrepreneurs who have been quite successful, they come to us specifically because we are an inclusive, a socioeconomically inclusive firm. I, I mean, among other things that they come to us for, but that that is... You know, it's unfortunately unheard of in our industry. How are you getting that word out? In other words, how are you able to differentiate yourself from so many others that are in the, quote, industry to have people trust that you take a different approach? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. We spent the first five, six years, we launched and um, really started the effort in 2012, launched the firm in 2013. And all the way up until about 2019, we straddled this fence between uh, serving individual investors and with one foot in like that, you know, core services of financial planning, investment management, uh, but doing it in the ways that I've talked about, you know, in um, kind of on and off Wall Street, values driven. And then the other foot we kept in research and development and public education. And that was in ways in which we were contracted by institutions. So our state's economic development agency, our local community foundation, one of our local universities, our local county government, we convinced them that caring about local capital and the initiatives around that, which involve educating the public, educating entrepreneurs, creating the infrastructure to have a thriving local capital marketplace, um, we convinced them that that was a viable conversation within community economic development. And so we really got our name out there in a lot of ways by, by, by creating the marketplace that we needed to exist in order to serve the investors that we wanted to serve. And after about six years of that, we had enough investors coming to us that we could no longer service the institutions also. And so we said, okay, we're done so, you know, doing this research and development kind of infrastructure field building work, and we are only going to exclusively serve investors. And so uh, that entire time and all the way to today, we have not had to have a marketing plan. We don't have a marketing budget. We don't advertise. We are 100% referral word of mouth at this point. And so as we've served more clients, then they just turn around and tell more people and they find their way to us, which is pretty incredible. And we feel blessed. Well, that's the best kind of business to have where you don't have to spend any money uh, acquiring new customers and they come to you because you you make such a difference in their, in their lives. Uh, today, uh, What's what's the size and scope of the business in just terms of number of employees or how how many on the team? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we have seven people involved in in total, and four of us are the operating team. And it just so happens that it's the four women of the seven that are the operating <laughs> team. It just kind of shook out this way. Um, the other three uh, men, they are are co-founders. So my husband and then uh, two other co-founders, Eric and Pavan, and all three of them are working in other parts of the world, you know, and other types of industries, still very values driven in the work that they're doing. Um, but they're, uh, they're not directly servicing and we pull them in uh, quarterly for strategic planning. And then whenever we've got a special uh, case that we need to pull in their expertise for. And so, so that's uh, who's on the team. And then of the four uh, servicing, two of us are advisors and two are on the operations team. And so in the world of investment advising, uh, where you're exchanging time for value in, in some kind of way, uh, there's only so many people you can serve with quality. And so, uh, and this actually goes back to psychology and how many relationships you can maintain in your life at any one time without uh, quality diminishing. And so um, 
you know, the studies show that it's about 150 relationships you can manage in your life. And roughly 50 of those get taken by friends and family and other close mentorships. So that leaves about 100, uh, some people argue 50. Uh, so somewhere between 50 and 100 clients per advisor is about what a firm can handle. So we have two advisors. That means we can handle between one and 200 clients. And we are currently at 125. So we have the ability to serve a bit more and we'll continue to take clients until we reach our capacity and our natural limitations. And then um, among those 125, uh, we are managing about $25 million in the public markets. And so that makes us a really small firm in the grand scheme of things, uh, a boutique firm almost that what people would say. And, uh, but of that, those 125 clients, about five, they collectively have shifted about $5 million from Wall Street and into community investments, uh, into privately owned businesses or community development finance institutions. And so th that's a pretty big number for a firm our size. So we're, we're really excited about all the work we've been able to do. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're, we're this one little mark on the map and uh, we just try to have the best impact we can. Yeah, well, you're obviously having a big impact. Uh, it doesn't really matter the size or scope of the company. Uh, your husband's involved in the business. You're a mom. Uh, you're an activist in the community as well. How do you balance all of this? Yeah, uh, midday naps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, so I'm I'm happy to share here, uh, no matter how this turns out in life. But I'm pregnant with our second child, and and so that adds an additional uh, layer of of you know that that constant kind of shift of time and energy, and how do you keep that all balanced and. And so in our team, um, so I've got, you know, one and then one in the hopper and then, and then um, one of our operations team members also has two kids, uh, six and three years old. And so we, we grew this business while also growing our families and we had to learn really early on the, what it really meant to take care of ourselves and to, and, and that taking care of ourselves was taking care of our clients. And so we have some really cool self-care practices. Like we take a couple months off a year, a month in the summer and a month in the winter. Um, we close down our calendar when we need to. We pause on taking new clients when we need to. Uh, we ask for grace when we need to. And we take naps when we need to. <laughs> you know, th those are really great practical tools that uh, I think are uh, wonderful ideas for others to think about. And that same idea, we've got to take our care of ourselves first. And you seem to have done a, a really nice job. I'm not, I'm sure it's not easy and it's stressful, but, but looking at how to balance both the, the family and the business at the same time. Uh, but to really grow as a special kind of leader, I'd love to take you back, Angela, to where this all came from. Kind of Let's look back at your childhood, your folks, your grandparents. What, what were some of the early influences that shaped your leadership style? Yeah, so I had a really interesting childhood because it was bifurcated in a lot of ways. My parents uh, met in the military and they were only together for four months and they split up before I was born. So I grew up with my mom and then I didn't get to meet my dad until I was 12 years old. And so for the first 12 years, being with my mom, who herself had mental health and addiction 
concerns and challenges, struggles that she worked with, uh, worked through in life. Um, it was really challenging and I, and I was an only child. And so I really, it forced me to grow up really fast when I was young and, and essentially take care of myself. I was a proverbial latchkey kid, uh, growing up in the eighties and, um, and uh, my mom, with those challenges, also didn't really understand personal finance as well as I think we have the ability to understand today. So, uh, so we were always in some state of um, of crisis, whether that was uh, not having functioning car or utilities being shut off uh, or something else. But she tried her best to keep um, keep it all together in in a middle-class like type of life, you know, um, despite all the challenges. So, uh, so that was really, you know, difficult. And then I met my dad, uh, when I was 12 and, um, and my father is Hispanic and my mom is Italian. And so I, I met this Hispanic side of my family. I traveled to Texas and, and I, I found out I had hundreds of relatives. I mean, I had, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins by the dozens and they all welcomed me with open arms um, and the, the most impactful part of that experience, though, was being handed a book that was written about my grandmother, Maria Elena Lucas, who is still alive today, and then getting to meet her. And the, the book is, uh, is called Forged Under the Sun. And it was about how she had moved her kids to Illinois to work and, in the fields with migrant farm laborers and to organize among migrant farm laborers for uh, human rights and worker rights. And her experiences as a woman activist in the 70s, 60s and 70s, and then culminating with her being poisoned by a crop dusting plane by a farmer um, for her work and uh, almost killing her and my uncle Hector. And, and so it's incredible stories that are written down that anyone can pick up the book right now, but also just getting to meet her and talk to her and hear her stories one-on-one, -on -one, it really inspired me to, uh, it, it's almost like it awakened genes inside of my DNA that, that I, I finally started to understand why I would always chafe at what seemed like injustices in school or being bullied on the playground, like why it bothered me so much other than just being the victim of bullying. And, um, and so that had happened meeting that family and also seeing economic struggles on that side of the family and how, um, how just the systems were just so burdensome and complicated to navigate that it was really hard to succeed. Uh, and so all of that um, came together with a, a natural love of mathematics. And, uh, and then from there, I just, I just had to figure out how to put it all together. And so by the time I was 21, 2021, I, I figured out that going into finance was, was probably the best way to pair activism with anthropology, which I had fallen in love with in college and um, math, I had to pair it all together. Wow, uh, incredible story. And uh, I know what you mean by the, the big Hispanic family, because uh, I, I married a woman from a big Hispanic family, and all of a sudden, my family got bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, uh, like you said, big open arms um, uh, and great values. So I'm not surprised at the the lessons you learned there, um, and that that certainly shaped you in a big big way. Any any other early uh, 
school lessons mm-hmm. learned, early jobs, anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I I happened upon two mentors and one when I started going to, to university at Eastern Michigan University, um, Valerie Constance was, uh, was her name or is her name. She's still with us today. And, uh, she, she, you know, was a, a progressive and I had never known a progressive or known what that meant. And so she really instilled, um, even further instilled workers' rights and, and, uh, women's rights, um, you know, and, and just fighting for what's right. Uh, into me. And then at the same time, I met another mentor who was almost diametrically opposed to and contrarian to her position. And he was the the financial advisor that I had, um, the first one that I had met. And so he was contrarian, not only to her in, in political and social views, but he was also contrarian in terms of economics. He, in 2000, or in 1999, he was calling a tech crash and putting out ads in the newspaper, the local newspaper for a tech crash. And then in 2004, he was calling a housing crisis based on derivatives and was and was warning clients and putting them into silver and gold and trying to explain to me the history of the Federal Reserve and our and how the economic system actually works in the United States. And uh, between these two, it was it was such a uh, extreme ends of the spectrum of thought and critical thinking that it really opened me up to be able to see everything in between. And, and so it's, it's rare that a financial advisor has that kind of diametrically opposed apprenticeship, um, in their early years, but that really shaped me. And, and I think if anything, just opened me up to alternative thought. And so, I went on, I got into the industry and ended up going to work for a big firm to see, because like, I thought maybe, you know, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, you know, because the markets didn't actually culminate to all of that for a number of years. So I went to go work for this big firm. And I remember, you know, this one particular experience of being at a table with my peers and a team leader, and we were talking, we were celebrating the graduation of a program I was in. And uh, we were just talking about all kinds of stuff. And I said, you know, have you ever wondered what would happen if the dollar just crashed and was no longer accepted as the world currency? And my team leader literally looked at me from across the table, stood up, turned around and walked away from the table without saying a word to me. And the whole table was silent, right? And I thought, oh man, I've really like put my foot in my mouth. Like, what did I say? That was so bad, you know? And he comes back about 15 minutes later and he just puts his hands on the back of his chair and he just stares at me dead in the eyes. And he says, are you done talking nonsense now? Right. And, and it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, I get it now. Alternative thought and critical thinking is actually not welcomed in the industry, in the grand scheme of things, that this is actually sales work. And so those kinds of experiences of, of being inside of it all and seeing how it doesn't, the industry doesn't really encourage uh, alternative thought or innovative thought. Um, it, if anything, it fueled me <laughs> to, to go find or create the home. That's ultimately what I had to do. I had to create the home I was always looking for. And that's why our team is here with me still today, because this is the home we were all looking for that we could never find. So well, that, yeah, I mean, that's a, 
I guess, in a way, a sad state of affairs that there isn't a home like that that you can find, then you have to create it for yourself. But I think you are creating something that others will emulate uh, in the way that you've done it. It's so interesting now as we think about this polarization in the world and the political climate that you seem to learn early on that there are two sides to every coin, that there are two sides to a conversation, that there's somewhere in the middle that is where the solution is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, So fascinating. I know that you had some lessons learned coming out of the 2008 financial crisis as well. Yeah, that was that was really when community resiliency and the transition movement uh, really hit home for me. So, um, for some context, you know, my husband and I we we came into adulthood with absolutely no assets, no you know personal finance education, like no college fund, no nothing. We just had to figure it all out as we went, and so we bought this starter home in a neighborhood. Um, that was the only home we could afford. And uh, I was supposed to be our five-year home. We bought it in 04 and then 08 happened. And they, after 08, there, there was this moment where we saw this ad on, on a real estate website where they were, this realtor was selling seven houses around us um, or selling seven houses where if you buy the six, you get the seventh free and the six were going for like $7,500 each. And we had, we had paid a hundred and like 16,000 for our house. So it was just this devastating moment for us. And, um, but that wasn't even the worst of it. What was the worst of it actually was the deterioration of the social fabric of our neighborhood. And so in those post 08 years where people had become desperate on a jobs front, on, on, on just a social front, we were witnessing and experiencing shootings regularly, you know, witnessing them from our front porch, hearing them within our house. It was terrifying. And so we, we saw that kind of like break a part of the social fabric. And we, and we really started to understand that it really doesn't matter how much money you have. If we don't have social connection and safety within our communities, then we, the, all the money in the world doesn't, it doesn't do anything for us. Right. So there's that. And then there was also a concern um, after 08 about, you know, our major systems, like the electrical systems and, and fuel getting to where it needed to go. And, and so um, a lot of people around us, a lot of clients and just other, you know, people in our, our network started to, you know, invest in long-term storable food and putting solar panels on their house. And, you know, there's this just whole resurgence in resiliency and talking about how do we transition out of a fossil fuel economy and into clean energy um, or to uh, slow down even our food systems, you know, and get back to, to soil rehabilitation. You know, all the things that we now talk today about, but 10 years ago was, was radical almost. Um, and, uh, and so that, that coupled with everything I had already experienced in this kind of contrarian and progressive, you know, upbringing, uh, really came together for me and and made me uh, excited about and called toward 
being a, a contributor to that movement. Um, and so, you know, that's helping investors uh, value the solar panel opportunities for their house and that being part of the portfolio conversation or um, divesting out of Wall Street in order to invest in clean energy projects or, you know, whatever it was, investing in long-term storable food or, or starting a, a, you know, victory garden in their front yard, whatever it was, I, at the end of the day, it, those are the conversations I think our industry should be having. And if we're not having those conversations with our clients, I think we're doing everyone a disservice. You know, it's, I don't understand how you can talk about money and not talk about all of the other aspects that money that you're just transferring the money for. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, So it just seemed like the logical thing to do was to, was to, you know, formalize that within the industry. You know, today, as you said, your your company is a small firm, uh, whether you call it boutique or not, big impact. Um, what are you looking for going forward, Angela, in terms of the company? Uh, are you looking to become a bigger company? Uh, are you looking to scale in a certain way? And if you are looking to scale, how do you take what you've done, which is so unique and special, and continue to maintain that same level of quality as you grow? Mm, Yeah, I think that's the interesting point that we're all at in our lives right now at Revalue is we're all, you know, kind of asking ourselves, like, where do we take this in the next five to 10 years? Um, Up until now, we have very openly, very freely, very joyfully shared every bit of what we do open source with other peers you know, our, our whole fee structure, our service lineup, everything we do is open source to anyone that wants to learn about it. And we've influenced peers across the country that way, not by, you know, being a consultant to them and not under a business model, but just because we feel that in a distributed network, the, that is the, the best way to affect changes through replication and innovation upon that replication. And so until we land on the definitive answer of how big do we want to grow to, do we want to become what's called an enterprise level firm where you start to acquire other firms, you've got 30 advisors, then 50, then 100, you know, until we answer the question of whether we want to take that next leap to um, from an ensemble type of team that we have now to enterprise level, at the very least, we will continue to influence and share what we've learned and the mistakes we've made and the lessons that we've derived from those mistakes or, or tests, <laughs> market tests. We will continue to share those uh, very openly with anyone who wants to listen. Well, I think that's almost a bigger impact that you can have, which is helping to change this industry and sharing openly uh, what those challenges have been and what you have learned and what you continue to learn. As you think about um, just what's happened over the last couple of years, we're still in this pandemic. We're hopefully uh, coming out of it. But um, what would you say are, are the biggest challenges you're having right now? Yeah, I think the there are two big challenges. One is that we are growing incredibly fast. And so we are experiencing on average 22% quarter over quarter growth for the last almost eight quarters. And in our industry, growth rates are more like 5% per quarter. Um, So we're growing really fast to the degree that we have to put a throttle on that growth sometimes. 
And so we, every day it is, you know, let's make sure the clients that will, every day it's first, let's make sure that we are sane so that we can continue to serve the clients. We are healthy and sane. And then secondly, what is it that the clients need? And then everything else takes a backseat to that. Um, And so managing that growth is a big challenge. And then the second big challenge is that there is this invisible, almost invisible uh, ceiling that exists in our industry. And it's not just for investment advisors like us and small firms, but it's also for fund managers, new fund managers, whether that's community investment funds or new ETF fund managers. Um, It is for the next generation, essentially, that's breaking into the industry. There is this, this, just barrier that we repeatedly and we on the collective sense across the country that we repeatedly run up against where the people with the money, the institutions, the um, very high net worth investors, the family offices, they will not give us the time of day. And it's because they are using a due diligence model that's rooted in 20th century ideology, which is that, you know, unless you have a 10-year track record, unless you have uh, uh, pedigreed uh, degrees on your team, unless you have this, unless you have that, we're not going to consider you in the running for our RFP or, you know, our, our whatever our bid that we're putting out for services. But by the very nature of being next gen, you don't have those, right? So now we can at least boast a, a nearly 10-year trajectory of service to the community. But uh, still, we manage $25 million and a lot of them will have a, a floor of, you know, you need to be managing $100 million or more. So the, the whole system of, of discernment is designed to keep the next generation locked out of opportunity. And I'm at the point now where I'm just becoming more and more vocal about it. Like, you know, look, I'm a woman, I'm Hispanic, I'm next gen, and I have a ton of, you know, our, our team has a ton of, of uh, credibility and experience behind us. It's very well documented. Uh, there's no reason why we should be locked out of any opportunity. And if we are, then you're being discriminatory. So I'm just calling a spade a spade at this point because I'm, I, we're not the only ones. There's, this is a complaint across the industry, uh, but we all in the collective sense are really tired of it. So yeah, that's the next frontier. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, if there's anybody that's going to um, make headway in in that fight, I, I think it's going to be you, uh, Angela. You are a participant in the most recent cohort of the Small Giants Leadership Academy. As a matter of fact, uh, you are a recipient of our original Lyft scholarship uh, because we're doing our part um, in this whole world of um, social justice and, and equality to make sure that our programs, which teach values-driven leadership to entrepreneurs, are made available to people of color in underserved business communities. And we're thrilled to have you as part of that program. You know, what, what does it mean to you to not just be a recipient of the scholarship, but to be in the Small Giants Leadership Academy? Oh, it's incredible. 
I mean, I can't tell you how many times, Paul, I can't tell you how many times I've seen opportunities over the years that I really wanted to be a part of. And the the entry fee was tens of thousands of dollars, you know, and I always thought to myself, like, how can you say that you're supporting the, you know, who, whatever group of people you're supporting or, or impact investing or whatever it is when you put that kind of price tag on the entry fee. And I just thought it was just so hypocritical. And so when I saw this opportunity and the, the fact that y'all had had partnered with Lyft, who I'm very familiar with and have seen them step in in other ways, uh, in other endeavors I've been involved in, it was so exciting uh, because I the small giants uh, concept, you know, book, community, all of that has been something I've seen from afar. And, and we would always self-describe ourselves as a small giant, but we didn't have, we couldn't figure out how to really plug into the community in a meaningful way. And so this was just perfect. It was like, oh, finally we get to like, we get to hang out with that actual small giant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. And, and uh, as you think about your own leadership journey, and um, it's clear that as you go forward, you're going to lead um, not only your team, but probably a larger team. And, and you're certainly a leader in the community. But what area of leadership do you think that you need to improve upon? Oh, oh, that's a that's a good one. Um, and a tough one only because it's hard for me to narrow down which one <laughs> area of leadership I need to work on. Um, but I think <clears throat> I think that the the recurrent theme that I've heard from my team over the last couple of years is that I need to learn how to step back and uh, continue to delegate and trust more. And even if uh, a team member might not do the thing the same way I would do it, that doesn't mean that it's not being done well. And so I, I can see that, especially if we do decide to grow and bring other advisors on, that that is gonna be a critical piece for me to do, not only for the well-being and, and professional health of, of the team, but also for my own uh, health and well-being and the sake of my family. So I think that's the the biggest one is extracting myself out of being a day-to-day practitioner um, and being prescriptive about the work uh, and, and instead just leaning further into being a visionary and trusting the team to prescribe as they'd like. Well, you have a, a high dose of humility and that's about half the, half of what you need to get there. So uh, you, you are well on your way. Um, and lastly, Angela, what advice would you give to a younger person who's maybe just starting out in their career about um, the opportunity to follow in the footsteps of someone like you? Mm. Wow. Awesome. There's so much. <laughs> you know, I think the biggest thing is that the early years are really, really brutal. They're so discouraging. The no's are so, so many and if, and the challenges feel insurmountable. And I recall, you know, moments of losing the faith of my friends and family and, you know, them saying like, what are you doing? Like, you're just fighting an uphill battle. I remember being belittled by people and the peers and other professionals, people not understanding what I was even talking about. And I mean, it was just like 97% uphill, rolling a boulder up a hill, 3% moments of joy. And I 
would tell a, a person starting off in their path that 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 is just what the name of the game is in those early years. And those early years might be your first year, your first five years. It might take even longer than that. But if you really truly believe in what it is that you're doing and you're dedicating your energy to to moving around those barriers and to building relationships and to to solving the problems of your of your offering and you know your models if you're really dedicating yourself to that day in and day out you will get to that that you know kind of crest of the hill and it'll get easier and easier from there to the point where it just doesn't you know, it's more like 97% joy and 3% uh, overcoming the challenges. And that's really where I'm at today, you know, for all of my, you know, complaints about challenges, they're, they're pale in comparison to what the first few years were like. So that would be my advice. Yeah, I love the message. Stick with it. Uh, I want to close, Angela, with these five quick hit questions like the association game. Just maybe say the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, okay. How how about the name of a leader that you look up to? Oh gosh, you know I'm going to say my partner Pavan Muslimdar. He I look up to him. Yeah. Nice. Uh, <laughs> how about a great book that influenced your leadership style? Uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm-hmm. Great one. Do you have an all-time favorite movie? Oh, The Princess Bride, without a doubt. <laughs> uh, how about a favorite TV series you like to binge watch? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm really enjoying The Walking Dead, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And lastly, what's something about you that many people don't know? Oh, um, my husband was in a heavy metal band for 10 years from the ages of 16 to 26. And I ran merchandise and booking. So I was in the metal scene uh, that whole time. And I still really enjoy heavy metal. And most people would never imagine that of me. Wow. What's the name of the band? Uh, The name of the band was Fall Hard. And they were local famous here in Metro Detroit. Um, And so, yeah, we had a lot of really good times for sure. I love that. I don't think uh, we've heard that one before. <laughs> um, well, Angela, I want to reflect on some of the things that that you shared today and, and lessons I've learned just by listening to you. Uh, and and it's just clear from so early on in your life that that you thought about making an impact and how um, how you could touch the world in some way. And a lot of it maybe was from the early struggles that you had. Uh, but I just love how you you ultimately built this practice around the social community investing and that the greater and greater percentage of your practice is based in that um, and that, that you serve all inclusive. You serve all sorts of people who may not normally have access to uh, this kind of practice and, and this sensibility around it. Uh, and so this really seemed to come from you know, your, your childhood and, and, and being born from parents who split before you were born and, and being raised by your mom with her own addiction challenges and financial struggles. Uh, and then, then meeting your dad at the age of 12, uh, always, uh, uh, financial issues as well. Um, 
And uh, but but that book about your grandmother and and the history there of how she moved the family and how she was really a an activist and and a woman and um, just set the stage for you and and so um, you were somehow very self aware at the time and and continue to build relationships especially through college with your mentors who uh, continue to encourage you about activism and not just activism for its own sake but to I think listen to both sides and to, uh, to relish alternative thought. And, uh, and that's something that many people don't have. And so those early struggles, those early life lessons, I think served you very well. Uh, just that, that time with your husband, with your first house and that uh, underserved neighborhood too, um, has all gotten you to where you are today. Uh, and I, and I love your sensibility about, what you want to do going during going forward that yes yes you have the opportunity to grow your business but that's what all small giants think about is yes we want to grow but we want to grow with purpose and values and one way might be to scale your business another way will be what you're already doing which is to take this knowledge um, to not lock the industry out to say we're doing something special and we're going to share it with you because we want to make the world a better place and if that's just one firm at a time or it's the or the big funds that you can impact who might change the way they look at it, not discriminate, not lock you out of opportunities, not look just at size and scope. Uh, I have a feeling that you're going to get there. And the same with everyone is that uh, it's it's uh, it's never easy. It continues to be challenging. Uh, you still need to find ways to be better at delegating and trusting others and realizing that you can't possibly be as impactful as you want if you think that you need to do it all yourself. And there are great people out there and you can trust them if you go through the right process to find them and train them and mentor them. Um, and I lastly love the advice that you gave to younger people, which is that, gosh, those early years can be really discouraging and really hard. You're going to hear no a lot and, and people are going to tell you, you can't do it. But if you stick with it, you're dedicated and ultimately just passionate about what you do, you'll get there. And and then the problems will be problems that everybody has. But like you said, the bigger part is that you feel great. You've got a great family. You're having an impact and you're touching people's lives. So uh, I really want to uh, tell you how inspired I am by your story, Angela. And, and thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, great recap, Paul. Thank you so much. And I'm going to pass this on to my my future generations of my own family. You did such a good job. <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about purpose-driven leadership, go to smallgiants.org or follow us on Twitter at Small Giants Buzz. Until next time.